0: Greetings, and welcome to The House Podcast. My name is Michael, and I'm so glad that you're here listening with us. The House Podcast shares the message each week from our local gathering in Central Ohio, which is a gathering of those practicing or interested in practicing the way of Jesus together in our city. In addition to the message given each week by the speaker, we also occasionally will share bonus content, such as interviews with speakers, more in-depth discussion around certain topics, and practical exercises that can help you grow as an apprentice of Jesus. The House Podcast is part of the VIA Podcast Network, which is a larger network of podcasts all designed to help you and your community live out the way of Jesus in your context. For more information about The House or VIA, you can find us at theviacollective.com. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at thehouse.gathering. If you would like to contribute to the house financially, you can also do that at theviacollective.com. We're so glad you're here with us today, and may you be blessed by this week's message. Um, We've been in the Gospel of Matthew, and if you've been following along, you know we're kind of through the story of John the Baptist and Jesus in the wilderness, about to start the Sermon on the Mount. But we're going to kind of backtrack today and go all the way back to Matthew 2, which seemed fitting because one, we skipped it, and two, it's Christmas, and it is the Christmas story. Um, But before we dive into Matthew 2, and we're going to start right at the end of verse 1, before we dive into that, though, I do want to share a little story because it kind of is going to tie into the theme tonight, um, which is all about the distance between us and God. Um, So when I was in the Middle East after college, I lived there for several years, and kind of our goal, even though we had real jobs, our goal was to reach people with the gospel. And the people we were trying to reach— kind of our organization had a description for them. They were called unreached and unengaged people. And the whole idea behind that was that there are people with no access and no ability to have access to the gospel. And oftentimes we would find ourselves over dinner or over coffee having these conversations, and they often ended in a place something like this. What happens to those people that never hear about Jesus? What happens to them? What about the people, and there's probably roughly a billion of them, that never even hear the name of Jesus? And the organization I was a part of was a little bit more reformed, which just means they kind of had a high view of God's in control of everything, and and most of the time, kind of the party line was that those people knew enough to be judged by God, but not enough to be saved by God. And so there was this urgency to the quest. In fact, one of the reasons that I went was like at that point in my life, I really felt that urgency of like, wow, there's people that don't know. What a great thing to spend your life on. And tonight though, I really want to wrestle with that a little bit, but we're going to do it through the Christmas story. Um, And what's interesting is a lot of us We don't think of the Christmas story as about missions, but at its heart, that's exactly what it is. It's this gigantic moment in human history when God comes to us, and we are not the missionaries, we're the ones receiving the first missionary that God sent. And what's so crazy about this story is that all of the elements of the story are wrong. And when we walk through it tonight, we're going to see that over and over and over again, what you expect to happen isn't what happens. And everything gets turned on its head. And so I I want you to keep that question in the back of your mind. I'm just going to tell you right now ahead of time, we're not going to resolve the question tonight. You're not going to walk out of here with a pat answer like Michael asked us a theological question at the beginning. I walk away with a great answer to it. Now I've just solved one of the great mysteries in life. But I want you to keep that question and hold the tension. What happens to people who don't ever hear about Jesus? What about the guy in India who never gets a chance? What about the person in, you know, Nepal What about that guy? And a lot of us, when we think about it, we think there's a distance between some people and God. And we, who have the story, who have the book, we think we're at the epicenter of what God's doing. But Matthew's going to tell a story to religious people that really questions those assumptions, really questions who's at the center of the story and it really questions who's actually going to be there for the biggest event in human history up until this point. And so we've talked a lot about Matthew. There's been a lot of background. I just want to lead us up into chapter two real quick because It's been a few months since we were back at the beginning, but I shared about the genealogy, and right away we kind of learned Matthew's writing this letter to prove or to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He uses a genealogy to show that he's from the line of David, that he's actually qualified. And then there's these weird things in the genealogy, though. There's women in it. There's people that don't really belong. He seems to be making this theological point. And then Dan picked up, and he talked about Joseph's choice and kind of the reality that God put whether or not Jesus would have an earthly father into Joseph's hands. And Joseph had to choose whether to believe his teenage engaged fiance that she didn't get pregnant by another man but that it was a God thing and he made that choice and obedience and how so much hinges on our choice and then the story picks up we aren't going to cover it tonight but an angel comes to Mary and says there's going to be a baby and Mary accepts that and then we kind dive in right here at the end of chapter one so Joseph takes Mary home as his wife he decides to marry her But he didn't consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And then Matthew gives us some details about the story that nobody else gives. And Matthew 2, after Jesus is born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who had been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then Herod called the magi and secretly found out from them the exact time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where their child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And so that's the story of the Magi. Who here's heard that story before, by the way? Just curious. Yep. Most of us, right? It's interesting how we kind of have a Western take on the story. I was with some Chinese believers once, and I brought up Christmas and the story of the three kings, the Magi. And they were like, oh yeah, we know that story. And I asked them, what do you think that story's about? And they said, that story's about not ratting on your fellow believers. I was like, what? Where do you get that? Well, right there, the Magi, it's a joke. They're not really that wise. They told Herod where Jesus was. They told him when the star appeared. They're really foolish men. That's the point of the story. Don't be the foolish men. And they think the wise man moniker is just irony. That's how they read that text because they live in a context where people actually, you know, turn in other people to avoid jail themselves. And so there's a lot of lenses, we can read this story, but tonight I want to just kind of challenge some of our basic assumptions and kind of look at this moment in history. And so this is kind of the traditional nativity. Does anybody have a nativity at home? Curious? Yep. Who all is in your nativity at home? Who, who are the characters in the nativity? Who's got a baby Jesus in their nativity? Yep, I hope. Yep, yep. Who else is there? Who else is at the nativity? Mary. Mary and Joseph. Nice. Who else is at the nativity? Yeah. Usually you get a few angels. If you buy a really nice kit, you probably got three or four. Yep. Stars. That's a really nice kit. Yep. What else? A stable. Yeah. There's some sort of barn-like structure. Usually an animal. You get two sheep, maybe a camel if it's kind of trying to be authentic, right? Who else is at your nativity scene? Some shepherds. Yeah. Shepherds. And who else? Kings, yeah, you got these three usually bearded guys who are there. Sometimes they have crowns. I'm not really sure. We're going to get into a little history of the Magi. I'm not really sure why um, they're called kings. There's nothing in the text that uses the phrase kings. We don't actually even know that there's three of them. We just assume nobody would show up without a gift, right? It's actually, I think, Jerome, maybe one of the church fathers, like 300 years later, that decided there had to have been three of these guys because it's just we don't know. But we usually have three of them in our nativities. And usually there's some characters that aren't there that you might think would be there. Usually, anybody have a nativity with King Herod there? Anybody got King Herod at their nativity? No. Usually we don't have anybody like a chief priest or a teacher. You would think a rabbi or two would make it, right? But no, no, there's no rabbis at the nativity. It's a kind of quaint little picture. I've actually been to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's about six miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's like up on a big hill. So Bethlehem's a little down and away, but it's still in a little mountainy area. And most scholars think that this was probably the cave that Jesus was born in. Um, There wouldn't have been a barn-like structure, I'm sorry. That part of the nativity is just not accurate. Um, But there were a lot of caves in Bethlehem where they would put their livestock and the way it would work is you'd put the livestock at the front, and the people would be behind the livestock. So it was a sort of protection, and it would be easy to block the animals in. And I don't know if this is actually the exact cave. There's actually two sites. It costs $15 to get into one and $25 to get in the other. And so I went, this is the $15 site. Um, <laughs> but, so maybe this isn't the exact spot, but it probably looks something a little bit like that. And so this monumental moment, in human history takes place somewhere like that with a weird cast of characters present. And if you, if you think about it through that lens of God as a missionary, the moment really doesn't make much sense. If you were trying to reach everybody, why would you go there? If you wanted to reach everybody, why would you go then? if you really wanted to reach the far reaches of the world, why wouldn't you wait till TikTok was around? Why wouldn't you wait until, you know, there was something better? And so God chooses this wild moment in history in a seemingly out-of-the-way, insignificant place. And the people around this moment None of them fit in. So who's at the nativity? We have shepherds. Shepherds were not cool. I know that, you know, they were one of my favorites in our nativity set growing up because you had the hook, right? And you could play with them better. But they were not cool in Jewish culture. Shepherds weren't, went, weren't welcome into the temple. They, weren't, they were considered unclean, basically. They're kind of the lowest of society. We might think of it maybe as like a trash truck driver, like the guy who collects the trash. Not a very esteemed position. And then along with shepherds, there were what we already talked about, these magi. Um, Just a little backstory about this because I do think it's fascinating and it really sets the scene. Matthew is the only person who mentions the magi. And he mentions it in the plural, and there's three gifts, so we kind of assume there must have been three of them. But magi actually comes from the word magic. Um, There's nothing in the text that says wise men. The reason we say wise men is because in Old English, wizard was actually W-I-S-A-R-D, coming from like wise man. And magi is a wizard, a wizard if you want to think of the Magi as wise men or wizards from the East, they're astrologers. We would probably think of them most likely as kind of scientists. They practice astrology and alchemy, which are kind of the precursors to chemistry and geometry. And they would have been very, very learned. And these Magi aren't there on accident. In fact, there's a brief mention of Magi in the Jewish scriptures long before this story takes place. By the way, I like to think of Magi as like Harry Potter, Harry Potter at the nativity scene. That's what's happening here. And I just like to think of it as Harry Potter because I just remember when Harry Potter came out and all the Christian moms were like, that's witchcraft. You can't go there. Can't watch that. And Harry Potter was at the nativity scene. But in Daniel, there's this wild story in the, anybody, everybody heard the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel's a story of a Jewish prophet in the time of captivity, and that's where magi are actually first mentioned in your Bible. Daniel interprets the dream of the leader of the kingdom of Babylon, and he doesn't just interpret his dream. The king doesn't want any BS, so he gathers wise men and he says to them. You have to tell me what I dreamed and you have to interpret it. I'm not even going to tell you my dream. That's how I know if you're making it up. So Daniel tells him what he dreamed and he interprets it and the king falls down and makes Daniel the chief of the Magi is what it says in Daniel 2. Daniel was the chief Magi, which is kind of mind-blowing. So we have probably descendants of followers of Daniel at the nativity scene. And what's so interesting about that is Daniel is the one who predicts when the Messiah will come. In the prophecy of Daniel, we see this, by the way, is just the verse 248 where he's in charge of all the magi. But in Daniel 9, we have this prophecy that says in about 490 years the Messiah would come. So the people at the time of Jesus were looking for the Messiah. He wasn't like just totally like out of the way, just unannounced. They were looking for the Messiah. And so these magi would have read Daniel's prophecy and they would have known there was a ruler and a savior coming to the world, which is just kind of mind-blowing They would have been Zoroastrians, which is what the religion of Persia was. So they aren't followers of the one true God. They're alchemists that are like wizards or warlocks. And they read the stars, but they have some of Daniel's prophecies. And we actually know from the Balaam character. Anybody know Balaam in your Bible? Yeah, what's Balaam famous for? What's that? Yeah, he couldn't curse Israel. What ends up happening to Balaam? His donkey talks to him, right? Yeah. So Balaam in Numbers actually gives a prophecy. Like we said back there, he tries to curse Israel, but he can't. And by the way, if you didn't know, Balaam is actually from Babylon. Balaam's from Babylon. So the Magi would have read Balaam. If you didn't know, Balaam is referenced in like seven different books of the Bible. He's one of the most quoted Old Testament prophets. And he got corrected by his donkey and he didn't even believe in the one true God. He's from Babylon. But when he tries to curse Israel, he ends up blessing them and he ends up prophesying about a star in the sky. And so you have these magi who don't worship God, don't know God, but have the ancient writings of Daniel and the ancient writings of Balaam. And so they're looking for a Messiah and studying the stars. It's just crazy how God orchestrates human history to get the right people there. And so we have these magi who choose to take this really long journey to find Jesus But then we also have to focus on who's not at the nativity. We already mentioned most of us don't have King Herod there or teachers of the law. At the nativity, though, they knew right where to go. Did you catch that? When they came to King Herod, these magi, they asked, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And the teachers of the laws and the scribes said, in Bethlehem. And King Herod, if you've never been to Israel, he lived in a palace, and his throne was actually David's throne. He sat on David's throne. And David was the Jewish forerunner. King David was the Jewish forerunner of the Messiah. The Jews had a sign. They didn't have a star. They had a sign. And he was sitting on the sign. And they had the scriptures. And they knew right where to go. When they're asked, they quote Micah and they say, He will be in Bethlehem. So you have teachers of the law in King Herod sitting on the throne of David, knowing right where the prophets, right where the Messiah will be born. They know the scriptures, they know the time, they also have the book of Daniel and they know who Balaam is. And they miss the most important event in human history, they miss it and they're 10 minutes away. So you have these warlocks, magicians, wizards, who travel hundreds of miles following a star, who make it to Jesus, and you have these these teachers of the law, the ones who should have known, the ones sitting on the sign, 10 minutes away, and they don't make it. They miss the most important event in human history. And it raises this question. What is the distance that matters? What about the Zoroastrian who doesn't know God, who doesn't have any access to the Bible? What about him? How is he going to find his way to Jesus? See, the truth is that those who want to find God, God will move heaven and earth to speak to them. And you can have every sign and all the verses memorized, but if your heart doesn't want to find God, you can be sitting 10 minutes from the most important thing in human history and completely miss it. The distance that matters is the distance in our heart. The distance that matters is the distance in our heart. So there's one phrase that I think is super important here. The Magi say to King Herod, where's the one who's been born, king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And I think for a lot of us, we think a lot of times that we want to worship Jesus, but we're not really fueled. We're not really motivated to be there. And what drives the wise men, the Magi, what drives them is the desire to worship them. It's interesting because King Herod knows that's the right answer. He knows that's what he's supposed to do. In fact, in his reply, he says, let me know when you find him so I can go worship him too. He knows that's what he should do, but he doesn't do that. In fact, what happens right after this story is a part of Christmas that we almost never talk about. He goes and he commits a genocide. And we don't talk about it because it's not really a fun or cheery topic. Nobody wants to go from jingle bells to genocide, right? But at the most important moment in human history, we have these non-God people desperate to find God and worship him. And we have these God people who say they're going to worship him and then go commit one of the worst atrocities in human history. And it's it's not an indictment on all God people or non-God people, but it does call into question who actually wants God and why do you want him. Herod wanted to know where Jesus was because Herod didn't want to give up his throne. The wise men wanted to know where Jesus was because they wanted to give up their throne. They wanted to give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh which were their three tools of trade: gold, frankincense and myrrh are what they would use for their alchemy. It's how they had power. It's what made them it's what made them knowledgeable. It's what made them looked up to. It's how they read their signs. They wanted to give Jesus everything. And King Herod didn't want to give up his throne. And the irony of the story is God knew what was in their heart. He knew what was in their heart. And he guided and orchestrate, orchestrated it so only certain people were at the nativity. The ones five minutes away missed it. And the ones hundreds of miles away found it. And so I think the question for us that Matthew invites us into is really, really simple. Would you make it to the nativity? Would you make it? Would you have been there? Herod could not be bothered to go on a search for the Messiah. He sent somebody else in his stead. And these wise men, magi, they traveled hundreds of miles through desert following a star in the sky just to hope they might find him. The legend in church history is that these magi died, and one of the second kind of church leaders in Christendom moved their remains to Babylon. And you can go into Iraq and visit their tombs to this day. In fact, Marco Polo, some of you have probably heard of him from school, Marco Polo visited the Magi's tombs. I mean, there's, there's not three of them because they didn't know if there's three of them or not. But the idea was they wanted to venerate or honor them because they searched and they found God. And I think the question I want to leave you with tonight is most of us in here, we have the scriptures. We know where to look. We're not forced to follow signs and abstract stars. But I do know this, if you wanna hear God, God will move heaven and earth and speak in whatever language you speak to get to you. And if you don't wanna hear him, you can memorize your Bible and not find him there. The distance that matters is the distance in your heart And the question tonight is, how bad do you want to make it to the nativity? Would you be there or would you miss it? And for some of us, we've been around God or at least God talk most of our lives. And for some of us, we feel like we've missed it. I felt that way for 15, 16 years of my life. I grew up in church. I wasn't really following Jesus. I felt like other people had experiences of God, but I felt like I always missed it. Have you ever like gone to a party and all the pizzas like gone? like you came just a little bit too late? That's what I felt like with church. felt like, man, the room must have been really on fire five minutes before I got there based on everybody else's reactions. And I'd mimic the body language, mimic the reactions pretend try to fit in but I knew I hadn't tasted or seen it I just felt like I'd always, I would always always missed it and tonight I really want to question the motive what do you want to find would you make it the nati- would you make it to the nativity? what determines if you make it is if you want to go there to worship. Do you want to surrender? Do you want to let go? Because that is the offer. And for some of us, we've thought for far too long that we have the inside track to God because we grew up Christians, because we have the New Testament, because we know about Jesus. But I promise you this, and I've seen it over and over and over in my life. Those who want God, find Him. And those who pretend might be five minutes away from God, but they miss Him. And there's a distance that really does matter. I'm going to pray. Father, I thank You that You sent Your Son for us. Lord, I thank you that Matthew wrote down the story of the nativity and the story of your coming. I thank you that all the wrong people made it. And I thank you that you made sure everybody who was supposed to be there was there. I thank you that you are the God who will use a star in the sky to speak to an astrologer. I pray for each person in this room tonight. I pray that you would speak in a language that they can hear. I just pray a blessing over their faith that they would know deep in their core that if they look for you, they will find you. And that no amount of church, no amount of God, talk. Nothing else can substitute. Nothing else matters but the distance in our heart. And for those here tonight, Lord, that find themselves, if they're just being honest, if they find themselves far from God, I pray that you would draw them home. I pray that you would draw them to the nativity of to a seemingly insignificant place where you showed up and changed everything. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.